Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Stephen Kiley. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. I'd like you, while you're standing, if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to go back to a, a very familiar portion of Scripture, Romans the 8th chapter. I'm going to be reading from verse 24 to verse 28. And this is the New King James Version. Um, It says, I believe this is the New King James and not the NIV. For in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Think about that for a moment. When a person is impatient while they're waiting, this verse seems to insinuate that they're not holding on to hope because a person that has hope can wait. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do know not what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit itself intercedes for us through the wordless groans And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God to them who are called according to his purpose. You can be seated. I want to take a, a few minutes tonight and I want to talk about uh, one of the foundation stones of our faith. And you probably already guessed that I'm going to be talking about hope. I know that in the world that I live in and that you live in, these are very tenacious times. People, as the Bible said in the end times, it says that their hearts would fail them uh, for fear because of the things that were coming upon the face of the earth. And I look at the calamity, I look at the confusion, and I I see the lack of hope, the lack of faith, the lack of trust. Sometimes people feel that their life is a place where hope comes to die. Think about that. They feel like hope is crashed and burned so many times that they don't even want to come to the door when they hear it knocking. They've turned on the call black, the call block to bypass God's messages of hope. I was thinking as I was studying this out about uh, experiences that I've had more than once. Um, most of you know that I, I drove semi for years and years and years, and I had no greater uh, cessation of anxiety while I was driving that when I would come on a curve that I didn't know was there. It might be that I wasn't paying attention, which when you're driving hours and hours, you can sort of get into a zone, or it could have been at night when I really couldn't see far ahead. And oftentimes when I was driving, they'd keep us loaded, and that would be about 40 tons of of. Material between the truck and the freight that you were carrying, 40 tons, 
moving at 55 or 60 miles an hour and you'd come to the curve and you'd, you'd hit the brakes as much as you could and then you'd enter the curve and you'd try to keep it from, from flipping over because your, your weight was above the ground, maybe five feet, and if you were like Brother Barningham holding the tank, or your, it was even a higher center of gravity. And you tried to handle that truck, and you tried to swerve to the right to keep the, the momentum and the force that was trying to drive you into the ditch uh, sort of balanced so you could make the, the curve. It was very... Um, very nerve-wracking, and I remember how silly I'd be. I'd try to lean to the left. You know what I'm talking about. I'm leaning to the left in my seat like, this is going to make a difference with 40 tons. And uh, I know that in life, my life and your life, we're going to hit curves. We're going to come on things that we weren't expecting. We're going to be heading towards a, a, a destination. And that would always frustrate me too. I'd, I'd have a destination, a place of delivery. And I knew it was south. And then I'd hit the curve. And now I wasn't going south anymore. I was going west. I was pro prolonging my journey. And sometimes in this road of life, God sends us into a curve and it seems like we're heading in the opposite direction that we really want to go. I want to talk about uh, David for a moment. You all know the story. David was, he was the youngest of Jesse's children. He certainly was not the most favorite. Matter of fact, if you read commentaries, you'll find that the family wasn't really very proud of David at all. You can see it in their interactions, even when he goes to the, to the battle and he brings food from his father, Jesse, how they treated him. So he was sort of despised. He was sort of the loner of the family. And he lived taking care of the sheep. And there he watched over them, protecting them from wolves and lions and bears. And then when Samuel came into his life and called him out from obscurity and gave him a promise that one day he would be entering into royalty. Matter of fact, not be entering into royalty. He was going to be anointed with royalty because when Samuel brought him forth, he anointed him with the oil, which was a type of God's spirit which would lead him to that position of kingship. It was a great, uh, there was a great amount of fanfare at that. That was a big thing. I know they kept it under wraps for others, but it was a, a monumental time in David's life. It seemed like he'd went from the bottom to the top in just a moment's time, but really was he on the top when he was anointed? No, he received the anointing but he still was not yet king because there was a journey from obscurity to a place of authority. And I, I want to relate to you tonight that God has called you from obscurity. Why, if, you, if you're like me, why he called me, how he picked me, why he chose me, I have no idea because there was nothing 
in my pedigree and nothing in my background that merited his attention that I could see. But he chose me and then he filled me with that holy anointing spirit. And he made me a child of God and he gave me a place in the future of authority. I would reign with him. But what happened with David is what happens with us. David didn't go directly from the field to the throne. David started to go in the opposite direction as far as he was concerned. At least he had a home to live in when he started. But all of a sudden, in the future, he found himself running for his life, living in caves, running from an enemy that he did not have previously. What about Moses? He's commissioned by God to lead God's people to the promised land. He has a divine visitation that not many people could say they've ever had. There was the burning bush experience while he was living in the wilderness where God spoke to him almost as we could say face to face. He had a conversation with the Almighty and God commissioned him to do a great thing, to set his people free from the land of Egypt. But you know what he finds on that journey is not, not blessing. He finds battle. He finds struggle. It seems like he's heading in the opposite direction. God had promised him a promised land a land that was going to be flowing with milk and honey, which was symbolic of prosperity and peace. But he had no peace. He had no prosperity. It seemed like he'd come to a curve in his walk for God where he was lacking instead of gaining. They finally leave Egypt and the first test is the Red Sea. Can you see him as he looks behind him and he sees Pharaoh's armies, the clouds and the hordes of soldiers closing the gap between themselves and the army? And there was the Red Sea. I want you to look at Moses as a human being. Could he possibly have uttered the words that you have uttered so many times? Was he as human as you and I are? Could he have looked to heaven and said, God, what are you doing? You, prom you promised freedom and a land of flowing with milk and honey, but all I see is obstacles. It was just a curve in the road on the way to promise. What about the murmuring people constantly complaining? This isn't what he imagined. After all that God had done for them in Egypt, after all the miracles, all the provision, they, they came with nothing, they left with everything. And yet the complaining would not cease. I think he was sick and tired of listening to these self-justified uh, and self-focused people. 
And he wondered if he could just go back to the quiet of the desert where things were so much more in focus. And I could go on to tell you about Jericho as Joshua took over the reins and they saw the promise, but it, there was a road to promise that was, that was paved with stones. They had the giants in Canaan, the walled cities, the countless battles, so many curves on their destination to promise. I'm talking to all of us tonight because right now you may not be on a curve and you may be on the expressway heading towards heaven, but I'm letting you know there's gonna be curves in the road and you know that because you've already hit a number of them already, but be prepared to slow down. I could, I could actually talk about John the Baptist too. Even before he was born, the promise was given. He was going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. He was prophesied about in the Old Testament. I could talk to you about the Apostle John. How about the Apostle Paul himself? It's, listen to what I'm, I'm gonna say now. It's not the journey that justifies hope. It's the destination. Hope does not focus on the immediate future. Hope focus focuses on a destiny, on a goal. I want to go back and, and, and look a little bit at the word hope. You know, when in our English language, according to our Webster Dictionary, our terminology of hope might be a little different than the Greek word itself. We use the words, I sure hope so. You ever you say that? I sure hope so. We say that all the time about the weather. They say it's going to be warm tomorrow. I sure hope so. Uh, we're, we're going to get, things are going to get better. I sure hope so. In that sentence, are we using the word hope the way that the Greek word was written? Is our definition of hope different than what Paul was talking about in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the word hope comes from a word called elpis, E-L-P-I-S, which means a strong and confident expectation. A very strong and confident expectation. In other words, hope is tangible. Hope is a pillar in the house of faith. Now, when we look at the verse that we used in Romans 8 and 24, it says we are presently being saved by hope. Again, that means in this particular verse, it means to be delivered. We're delivered by hope. We're preserved by hope. We're protected by hope. We're healed by hope. We're kept safe by hope. We are born again children of God. 
And Paul reminds us that we are saved by hope. And, but he says to us, rest assured, hope that is seen is not hope. If your hope is based on the visible, the tangible, the things that you can touch, the things that you can smell, the things that you can hear, the five senses of your human element, that's not hope at all. But yet we're saved by hope for hope, hopes in those things that are not seen. Let me see if I can quote that right. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not yet hope. For what a man seeth, what does he yet hope for? But if we hope for that, that we see not, we do with patience, there we go, wait for it. God in his infinite wisdom has not revealed too much about our glorious future in heaven. Oh yeah, we know there's a new Jerusalem. We all know that the streets are paved with gold and the gates are made of pearl. We know the dimensions of the city, but it really doesn't tell us a lot. But it does tell us a little bit about our role. The Bible refers to the church as the bride of Christ. Now, in this room, that's something that most of us can relate to. For marriage is an important part of our life. It's especially of us that have been married and are raising children. We understand a marriage, a relationship, a commitment, a bond. We can also relate to the bride experience, the anticipation, the excitement of the bride-to-be as she eagerly awaits her wedding day. Now let me talk to the guys. Remember when you proposed and your wife was getting ready to get married? Remember all the things she was excited about? The dress, the cake, the invitations. Now honestly, were you as excited as she was about the invitations and the cake and who were people sat at the table or the dress? Did you spend hours with her at the shop looking at all the different dresses and the things that would cover her face? No, but to the bride. The bride, it was the greatest day of her life because she was going to be united with the one that she loved and she was going to have a family. That's why the Lord chose us to be called the bride. Because even before the ceremony takes place, the joy is present. Even before that ring is slipped on that third finger, there has been joy for months previous. I know that there's gonna be a wedding supper of the Lamb in heaven mentions that in the end of the book of Revelation. What's going to carry us through is our hope in our destiny, in the wedding of the, of the uniting in the home of the bridegroom. Have you ever found yourself living in the days following a great disappointment when something you've been hoping for and praying for seemed just about ready to come true. 
And suddenly, in a moment, it vanishes. It evaporates right before your eyes. Have you ever had that happen? How has that affected you emotionally? How has it affected your spiritual vision? Let me give you an example. My wife and I uh, were married in 1978. And before she ever said, I do, I, I really wanted her to know that my vision in life was to be a pastor. I wanted to be a minister. And she shared that same vision with me. Otherwise, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have worked. We both needed to know that this was the direction we were going to go in. And so we got married. We knew that someday we were going to be working together in ministry. And I always felt a little bit excited about home missions. And in 1979, that was one year after we were married, uh, we spent that first year of marriage living in Madison because she had one year of school left. And then right after she got out of school, she got a job, a very good paying job, And I already was working a a really great job down in Milwaukee, a union job. And we were financially, we were probably pretty set. Both of us were earning a good income. But we went out to Salt Lake City for general conference in 1979. And while we were in Salt Lake City, I came across a man. And I won't tell you his name, even though he's passed away, but... um, we ran into him in a restaurant and he was from Virginia. And he saw two young young individuals, two young people that were excited about ministry and he he was pastoring several churches, one in Maryland, one in Delaware and one in Virginia. And that's possible when you're in the East Coast because some of those states are so close together you can drive to three of them with an hour. And he asked me to come, um, and maybe see if I'd be interested in taking one of those churches over. Well, that, I was excited. I was excited and my wife couldn't get away and I was impatient and I flew to Virginia and um, I saw a beautiful little church in Hallwood, Virginia, had a little school, wonderful Southern people right on the other side of Chesapeake Bay, between the ocean and Chesapeake Bay. Not far from, if you know this, nobody will know where this is, Chincoteague Island. Uh, But it was a a nice resort area on the Chesapeake Bay side. And I came back all excited and I convinced my wife, I said, this is it, this is what God wants us to do, I'm sure of it. Just think, what are the chances that we ran into this man and all these doors have opened up for it. It's gotta be the will of God. So we quit our jobs and we packed up our uh, U-Haul and we left everything behind and I'll never forget her parents looking at me. They hated me. He was, I can remember him shaking his head like you both have good jobs. You've got a lot of things going for you and you're, you're leaving everything. What's the matter with you? And I told him, you know, this is the will of God. I, I really felt it was the will of God. So we, we moved to Hallwood. Well, actually, we went to Hallwood. We couldn't find a place to live. 
So we, we, we found a, a house trailer. <laughs> I wish you could see it. It was out in the middle of a field, and it looked like it had been there uh, about the time that Columbus landed. <laughs> they might have used it for a season with the Indians, but anyways, I remember that was the only place that we could find a, a home to live in. And guess the name of the city, and I think I've shared this with before you before, but the name of the city was called Temperanceville. I remember the, at night when the wind would blow, the curtains would move in the trailer with the windows closed. And suffice it to say, that was the first major curve in the road. Everything went wrong. Everything we tried to do uh, to survive financially, it was just terrible. The, I love the people. The people were the best, and the school was the best. But immediately we began to see that we possibly had made a bad decision. And the first lesson I wish they would have taught me at Bible college was there's a difference between a call of God and a need. There's a difference between a God-ordained call in your life for something to do and someone's need. Now, we can do needs, but the call of God, which gives us direction, is different than a need. And I, I learned that right away. And I, me and Lisa tried the best we could she found a job down in Accomack, um, which was almost on the other side of Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, you had to, it was on the other side of the bay, so you had to go that, along that really long bridge. And she would drive 45 miles to work in a very impoverished area late at night. And I felt, um, I think the word is, I, I hope I got the word right, emasculated. I felt that I was supposed to be the provider, not my wife. The pastor that had sent us there had decided that all the tithes and offerings were to come to his church in Del Mar. So when they would take the offering and all the tithes and offerings went there and they would pay the, they would pay the rent on the building, but we got nothing. And I remember how bad it got. I was so desperate. I was so depressed. I was so disheartened. Finally, I did the only thing that I could think of doing. In that area, there was a, a great big manufacturing plant. You ever hear of Purdue, Purdue chickens? Absolutely. That's where they, they would take the chickens and they would make them into fillets. And uh, I would see the truckloads of chickens going down the road and chickens on top of the crates and chickens on the side of the road falling off the truck. And I finally decided I got to go and ask for a job, anything, anything they can give me. And I remember getting out of the car uh, outside the plant and the chickens that were running in between the cars, it, they had escaped from the trucks and... 
I went into the interview and the guy said, uh, I said, I have experience as a truck driver. I'll drive whatever you got over the road, whatever you need me to do. And he said, well, we don't have any positions for that. And I said, well, do you have any jobs that I can do? He says, well, we have, we have a position for those that would uh, kill the chickens and pluck the feathers and things like that. But he says, I'm not even going to hire you because with your education, you wouldn't stay. Why would I do that? And he sent me away. I didn't cry, but the tears were rolling down my face. And I said, God, I'm trying everything I can to do. I'm trying to survive. This isn't, I'm not getting rich, Lord. Don't you understand my intentions? What is wrong, God? Is there something wrong with me? But the difference was I wasn't where God had wanted me to be. It was almost like Elijah when he uh, left Mount Carmel and he went into the area of Sinai and he was looking for direction from God and God spoke to him in a cave and he said, what doest thou here? That's what I was feeling like. Steve, what are you doing here? I didn't tell you to come. You decided to come. It seems like my hope was dying. It finally came to the place where I, I gave it all up. I said, I give up, Lord. And my dad was great, but I called him and said, Dad, could you, you help us out? You'd have to know my dad. Uh, when you make a bed, you sleep in it. If you're ever going to grow up and become a man, when you make a bad move, you're going to have to find your own way out. Well, me and Lisa, I wish you could see, have you ever opened up your checkbook and you see all the zeros? We never wrote a bad check, but we didn't have any money. We couldn't have got back. We didn't have enough money to, to buy gas to get back to um, Milwaukee. So I called my uh, father-in-law up, and I'll never forget uh, his attitude. He was more than happy to come. See, the devil likes to jump into your, those situations and place guilt on you. He wants you to feel worse than you already did. And he came down there and he rented the truck and I could, I could see him looking at me through the sides of his eyes thinking, boy, what a loser you are. But I'm not going to go any further with the story, but my vision was interrupted. I, this isn't what I saw. I, I had hope. You know what I saw? My hope told me that we're going to have tons of people get saved. We're going to be adding on to the church. I, I'm gonna, everybody's going to know my name, of course. That was the human part of me. But nothing, my hope was dashed. And I came back and I had to make a decision. Is it worth hoping again? It seemed my life was where hope came to die. Then when we got back, I remember we got back to Milwaukee. My wife told me she wasn't feeling good. You know what that is. And now we got a little one on the way and 
But enough of that story. God worked it all out. But God had to teach me a lesson. Those trials that you're having in your life, those struggles on your journey to the promise, they're placed there to help build character in you. The message I want to share with you today is that the disappointment you experience today may well be nothing more than a prelude for something even better tomorrow. Well, you want to hear the rest of the story now, right? (laughs) Just as bad as it was in Virginia, God turned it around to make it 100% different in the future. How many of you remember in 1979 what the interest rate was? 1980. 13.5% in Milwaukee. Home mortgages were going for 13.5%. And uh, I was able in the future to leave Milwaukee and move to Two Rivers, Wisconsin with a great paying job. Brother Chad, you know what I'm talking about. All of a sudden God opens up the door and you go from, from struggle to blessing. And In Luke 24, we start at 6.30, so let's have our I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to try to figure out what this new, it just changes my idea of when I'm supposed to be done. So we'll just go a little further here. In Luke 24, verse 13, we read a story about two of Christ's disciples. They're walking back from the city of Jerusalem after the crucifixion of Christ. They're on their road to Emmaus. They're engrossed in a conversation. They're discussing how their hopes have been dashed and they're staggering along with in disappointment. I do believe those two disciples were in the crowd on Palm Sunday, which was we celebrated just a few weeks ago, cheering for Jesus as he's made his way into Jerusalem amidst a hero's welcome. What a beautiful day that was. Like everybody else in the crowd, these two men felt that Jesus was the Messiah and he would be the one that would deliver them from the oppression of Rome. But how quickly their dreams were changed to disappointment. Jesus, instead of overthrowing the Romans who occupied Israel, he was put under arrest. He was beaten. He was humiliated by the Roman soldiers. He was humiliated by the priest. Rather than seeing Jesus sitting in power on the throne governing Israel, they were standing outside of Pilate's palace watching the verdict given of death, a death, a terrible death on the cross. It seemed that things cascaded from bad to worse. There was a little bit of hope because Pilate told them that it was their custom to release one, one prisoner at this time. And they chose a murderer and a thief over Christ. 
Their hearts were broken. Their dreams were dashed. Their sense of expectation for a bright and glorious future had suddenly been upended and they felt like they were living in a nightmare. Now the Bible says at some point in that seven mile journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus that the Lord came and walked with them. It says their eyes were withholden that they could not recognize him. And I think, hang with me a little bit, that sometimes when you're going through those deep, lonely depressions in your walk for God, the valleys of despair, that I think sometimes Christ walks with you. He might disguise himself and come in a way that you would not recognize him or be able to identify him. And he comes to encourage you and to restore your hope. I'm reading from verse 13 in Luke 24. Now that same day, two of them were coming to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. Now figure yourself, put yourself in their position now, and I want you in your imagination to think of a point in your life that you're in a similar situation as these two men are. You're facing disappointment and disillusionment. And all of a sudden, look at what they're going through. They stood still, their faces downcast. Yes, that would be me. One of them, name was Cleophas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? He asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more? It's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but they didn't find his body. They came and told us they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. See, I want you to look. They had been offered hope. The women had seen the empty tomb. The women had seen angels that had told them that he was alive, but they did not want hope back. That's why they walked downcast. I want to tell you, you'll come to church, but after you've been hurt so very badly, sometimes you don't want to receive hope because you do not want to be hurt again. Then they went on in verse 24, then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, now I'm saying to you and to myself, the same thing that he said to them. How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That's why we are saved by the foolishness of preaching, friend. We've got to believe the word of God. We've got to believe the prophets. And that's why he said to them, you're very foolish. 
to not believe? Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and began to give it to them. What is that a type of? Isn't that just a type of what we did on Friday night? He had did that before the crucifixion with his disciples. He had broke bread with them. And as soon as he had broken bread and gave them the bread to eat and the wine to drink, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. There's two things that are going to bring hope back into a person's life that has no hope. One is they have to continue to trust in the word of God. The second thing is they have to have fellowship with Christ. They need to take of his blood. They need to take of his body. Because when that happens, all of a sudden their eyes see things that they had not seen. Their ears begin to understand things that they could not understand previously. How many times have I said, now thank God, Lord, for, for Hallwood, Virginia. Thank you for Temperanceville. Because now I see what you were doing. Every, as I am now 42 years in ministry, how many times have I came to those curves in the road and thought that everything was falling apart, that I was going to crash and burn, and I'd go through the scenario of why hope of, of, of the things I hope from, for can be taken away. But now I look back and see that each one of them was a stair step in my way to maturity and my relationship with God. If you want to be strong in the Lord, you're going to have to be strong in his might. Paul, see, even the greatest men in our walk for God had these same experiences. Remember Paul, he said, I, I had an affliction in my body. Paul was the greatest evangelist in the entire New Testament. I believe he affected more lives than even Peter. But he said, a messenger of Satan was sent to buffet me. As a matter of fact, I, let's see if I've got that scripture here. It's in 2 Corinthians 12. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. What he's saying is, I've had so many great things. I prayed for people that were dead and they were healed. I prayed for those that were sick and they've been healed. I've seen great revival. Matter of fact, guess what? I was taken up to the third heaven. I was taken up into heaven and I saw things in heaven. God had given him so many revelations and so many of miraculous events in his life. And it says this, Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. A messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. 
That's the reason. That those trials in his life is what he was say, is saying, they were the tail to my kite. My suffering in my flesh helped me to control the pride that might enter into my life because of the way that God was using me and the blessings that I'd received. He goes on in verse eight to say, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. He didn't just ask. He was pleading, pleading with God. And notice what God said to him. And he'll say the same thing to you. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul, all of a sudden the light goes on. That happens on these curves. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities, reproaches, in deeds, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, yet am I strong. All things work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Hope is not optional. But you know where hope lives? You know, if you get a new car, you really want to keep it in a place that's protected from the weather. But do you know where hope is protected and where hope lives? It lives in faith. Hope lives under the roof of faith. Faith and hope work together to help each other. Faith, too, is the substance of things not seen. It's the evidence of things hoped for. And so, in closing tonight, the simple message I bring to you is even though you're coming around a curve and it seems like you're going to lose control and it looks like you're going in the wrong direction, never lose your hope and keep it protected in your faith. And the one way that you can keep hope from fleeing from you is to remember what the prophets have told you. The word of God will support you. He'll be, it'll be the foundation of your spiritual walk with God. And the next time you say, I sure hope so, remember that's not the definition that we are talking about in our relationship with God. Let's stand together tonight. My hope is in him. There's a song like that. Yeah. My hope is in you, Lord, my trust. I'm not going to ask Angela to play that, but it usually, but remember how we used to sing about that? It is in him, and it will take us through. This altar's open if you want to come and pray. Thank you for being so attentive. I appreciated that. Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast. We pray it has strengthened your relationship with God and will continue to be a light unto your pathway to heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please telephone our ministerial team at 
5177 or email us at info at abundantlifechurch.org.